G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. We are taking the gospel to the world. Pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. One truth that will be delivered in love and compassion, connecting every one person to all that God has promised them. You make me Today. Today. Today with Jeff Vines. Welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. My name is Bill. Now what? I'm sure you've said that a few times before, and we're starting a new series from Pastor Jeff called Just That. It's called Now What? He'll be covering topics for marriage and keeping relationships strong. And in today's message, there's encouragement for those who are struggling with chaos or when all seems lost. Let's get into it now with Pastor Jeff. And we're starting a new series this weekend, and uh, it's called Now What? And here's what it means. Uh, We use the phrase, God does not give his law arbitrarily. What that means is that when God tells us he wants us to live in certain parameters and by certain precepts, he does it because he loves us. Not because he wants to be the big bad cosmic boss, but because he says, if you live, I mean, if he's the creator and sustainer of the universe, he would know the kind of life we should live and within what parameters we should live those lives. And To a great degree, the Bible says, you know, once you get out of those parameters, there's a great risk that you're taking. But the reality is, if you're like me, most of us have violated all 12 of the Ten Commandments at some point in our lives, right? And, And we've done that not only on the Ten Major Commandments, but we've violated commandments or principles within each relationship of our life. For instance, uh, I walked into the bedroom uh, in New Zealand when we lived uh, there in Auckland, and my wife was seated at the end of the bed, and after seven years living there, she said, I'm leaving. Now, I've told you guys this story before. I'm not going to go into depth, but the reality is it, it was a rude awakening for me. And you know, I wanted to say, you can't leave me. I'm a pastor. And the reality is I don't care who you are. If you violate the principles of a healthy marriage, it doesn't matter who you are or what you do, that marriage is not going to be able to be sustained over a long period of time. If you violate principles with your children, if you violate principles in your own life, whatever they are, you're given no guarantee that you're going to live the abundant life when you systematically dismantle the principles God's put together in your life to give you the abundant life. And so this series is, now what? In other words, what if you're in here and your life's already in chaos? What if you've already been through a marriage and a divorce? What if you've already had children that have gone AWOL and you don't know when they're coming back? What if you've already got an addiction that you found was easy to grab hold of but very difficult to let go of? What if you're in the middle of that now what? Because Christians are notorious for telling people how to live, but not so good at telling people what to do after they're in a mess already. 
And I want to address some major issues in our lives. And to do that, to find out now what, we got to go back to the life of Jesus. Because until you understand the core of the gospel and what it really teaches, there's no way you're ever going to have any hope for the chaos that's in your life, either because of the situation you're in in this world or the situation that you've created in your life by a series of bad decisions. Thank God, literally, God is not the kind of God that says, aha, you got outside the parameters, your life stinks, I told you, you deserve it. That's not the God of the Bible. He's a God of mercy, a God of grace, and a God that says, okay, now that we've done this, let's move on. Now what? Now to help us understand this, I want you to go back for a moment with me. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there when Jesus was healing all those people in New Testament times? Wouldn't you have loved to have been there when he took the clay and he put it on the blind man's eyes and he spit on his hands? I don't know why he did that. It must have been a first century thing. And just kind of puts it over the eyes of the blind man and then he sees. Wouldn't it have been cool? The lame guy, you know, uh, those four friends put him on a mat and lowered him down through the roof of the house while Jesus was teaching. And Jesus said, pick up your mat and walk. And the dude picked up his mat. and Wouldn't you have loved to have seen that? I, what about raising Lazarus from the dead? Wouldn't that have been cool to see Lazarus walk out of that tomb and the King James Version says, behold, the body stinketh. That, I mean, he smells. Wouldn't, it, wouldn't you love to just smell that? What, what does it smell like to come back from the dead? Maybe they could market that as some kind of new cologne or something. Back from the dead. But I would have loved to have been there. My favorite story, my favorite story is in John 8 when those guys bring the woman who was caught in adultery. Yeah, more like a setup. And they threw her down at Jesus' feet and they wanted to stone her. And what did he do? He said, okay, sure, guys, go ahead. You, whichever one of you does not have a sin in your life, you throw the first rock. And they all dropped it. And then Jesus said, well, it looks like nobody condemns you. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That was Jesus of the Bible. Mercy, compassion, grace. That was him. And yet we come to the garden now. Three and a half years of ministry. And he's praying because he's just hours away from his crucifixion. And the Bible says in Luke chapter 22 that he was praying so desperately and that he was so anxious that he began to sweat drops of blood which is an actual medical condition called hematidrosis. It's when the uh, sweat glands, the uh, capillaries burst, mingling sweat with blood, and you actually sweat drops of blood. It only happens in the most extreme cases of anxiety. What is it that Jesus was so anxious about? Well, first of all, how many crucifixions do you think Jesus had seen in his lifetime walking through Jerusalem? Don't you think there were times he probably looked down and thought, wow, that's gonna be me in just a few short years? The Romans were crucifying people by the hundreds, man, if not thousands. Every day there were crucifixions in and around Jerusalem. Don't you think Jesus would have stopped and pondered, man, will I be able to endure what I'm about to go through? Will I be able to do that? Hebrews chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 4 both tell us that Jesus was made like us in all things, that he was tempted in all ways just like us. Do you think there was a time Jesus said, you know what? I don't think I can go through with this. This is going to be too horrific, too difficult. The other thing, for the first time, You'll notice that Jesus prays in Luke 22, and he doesn't feel better after the prayer. In fact, angels have to come and give him strength to endure what he's about to endure. And the reason he's so anxious, he's starting for the first time to feel what it's like to be separated from his father. Now you think about this. I've got a dog, Milo, and if Milo has some pups, which would be miraculous in and of itself because we neutered him a long time ago, something for which he's never forgiven me. But let's say he had some puppies, and I take a few of those puppies and I give them away. Milo's not going to be that sad. He'll be sad for maybe an hour or so. Then his next meal comes, he's all forgotten. But come and take one of my children away. Give them away. 
The capacity for love, the greater the capacity for love, the greater the capacity for pain at the fracture of relationship. Now you go from the dog to my wife and me, now you go to God, who is perfect in every way, in relationship. He has the greatest capacity of love ever, infinitely greater than you and me, which means he has an infinitely greater capacity for pain and suffering at a fracture of relationship. Jesus, for the first time, is beginning to feel what it's like for the Father to turn his face away. And the Father turns his face away from the Son in order that he would never have to turn his face away from you and me. And so Jesus is anxious. The writer in the book of Luke goes on. Jesus turns, and Judas meets him in the garden. And Judas does what? He kisses him. And a lot of us think that that kiss is just a way of identifying Jesus in the darkness to the Sanhedrin so they'll know who to arrest. It's much more than that. When a disciple encountered his fellow disciples and his rabbi, his master, he would always go through and greet each one of the disciples first and then greet his rabbi last as a sign of deference that he recognizes there is a great distance between teacher and disciple. Judas doesn't even greet the other disciples. He walks straight to Jesus and he kisses him. And yes, it identifies to the Sanhedrin committee who Jesus is that he might be arrested, but it does something else. It's a direct statement. It's a direct statement. Judas says to Jesus, I am equal to you. I don't need you. I can live my life of independence away from you. I am self-sufficient. And he walks away. The writer tells us the story because number one, it wants you to recognize Jesus is suffering hematidrosis. Hematidrosis, after you suffer that type of anxiety for the next 24 to 48 hours, your skin is incredibly sensitive to touch. It's very painful. And not only is he experiencing that kind of physical pain, but now it's the betrayal of Judas. Judas betrays him in a sense of independence away from his friend, but he also betrays him in a sense of intimacy that he's had with Jesus. There's a verse in Psalm 55 that tells us what Jesus was going to feel like when the prophecy became true that Judas kissed him and betrayed him. If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were rising against me, I could hide, but it is you, my companion, my close friend. So Jesus is not only suffering the pain of separation from God the Father, hematidrosis, a physical uh, issue, an illness, and now Judas, one of the disciples, one that he has shared intimacy with, one who has depended on him in the past, has now chosen to go an independent way and to betray a love. And the deeper the love, the more painful the betrayal, right? If one of you come up to me and I've only met you one week and you say to me, I don't like you and I'm never coming back, that's going to hurt a little, but I'll get over it by lunchtime. If there's somebody that's been coming five years, it'll take me a little bit longer to get over it. Ten years, if there's an elder in our church and they come and they say, look, I don't like you, Jeff. I never have. I'm, that's going to hurt. But if my wife comes and says, I don't like you and I'm never coming back to this church, that's pretty serious business. The deeper the relationship, the more intense the pain. Jesus with not only Judas, but Peter, both going to deny and betray him in their own way. Then the Bible says, let me walk you through it, that they took Jesus and they put a blindfold on him. We're not talking about the blindfold the way we would think, but it's a mask kind of like this that covers the face. It would be a lot more dense than this. There'd be just barely enough air to breathe. And then they tie a rope around the neck. And the Bible says that they took Jesus all the way from the garden, going into the Sanhedrin court, which was an illegal court because it was done at night. They deny Jesus food and water and they strike him in the face. They do it with open hand and with closed fist. And the Bible says that they begin to mock him. And it's important to understand why they do this. They strike him and they say, if you're a prophet, tell us then. Prophesy. Who struck you? And this, is, this mocking is going to happen all the way from the time they find him in the garden to the time of the cross when somebody says he saved others, but he can't save himself. 
Why are they mocking Jesus? Here's why. In their minds, if a prophet is truly a prophet, God would never let anything bad happen to them. You go back to 2 Kings chapter 1, Ahab, the evil king, wants to kill Elijah. Elijah is a man of God. So Ahab gathers 50 soldiers together, and they're going out, and they're going to they're gonna do Elijah in. They're going to destroy him, hopefully, and, and shut him up from all these prophecies. And Ahab looks up to the top, and he says, Elijah, man of God, come down. And Elijah responds by saying, if I'm a man of God, I'll tell you what's going to come down, fire. And fire did come down and destroy them. In the, in the minds of the people in Jesus' day, if Jesus is really a prophet, there's no way they're going to be able to blindfold him, strike him without a lightning bolt coming down from God and protecting the man of God. In their eyes, there's no way God would ever subject himself to such weakness and vulnerability because God is only powerful and pride. So they strike him and they lead him all the way to the Sanhedrin court. Now, remember again, folks, it's so easy to to become desensitized to this kind of violence. But they're striking Jesus with closed fist and open hand. He's bleeding. He's sweating drops of blood. His skin is incredibly sensitive to touch. They're mocking him. His friends have betrayed him. They lead him to the court. The reason all this happens on the way is so that Jesus might come incoherent and not be able to answer the questions of the trial. So they bring false accusers in, remember? He said not to pay taxes to Caesar. That's not what he said. He said, give to Caesar what is Caesar, give to God, give to God what is God's. A passage I wish did not exist in the scripture, especially around tax time. <laughs> Second, they say, well, he said he's going to tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. That's not what he said. He said, if they tear down the temple, I will rebuild it in three days, referring to the fact that the temple is not a building or a place. A temple is in here. And if you destroy this temple, Jesus, he would resurrect in three days. They're frustrated, the Sanhedrin, because they can't kill Jesus and they want to. Has it ever bothered you? I mean, I know the Bible says he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He did not open his mouth. But man, if he did open his mouth, there's a lot of cool things he could have said. <laughs> you know, he could have prophesied who it was that's striking him. That would have kind of, whoa, it was you, Theus. It was you, Claudius. You know, it'd be scary. They prophesied. Or, you know, which, which action did they want to kill Jesus so desperately for? The, the one of healing the lame man, causing the blind to see? I mean, such senselessness in the life of Jesus. They're frustrated. They want to kill him, but they can't. They don't have that kind of power under Roman rule, so they got to send him to Pilate. And if you read Luke 22 in the end of Matthew, you find out that when Pilate gets to Jesus, he's already been warned by his wife. She was warned in a dream to stay away from him. But Pilate's intrigued by Jesus, so he wants to talk to Jesus. And they enter into some philosophical question about what is truth. Pilate comes out and says, I don't find anything wrong with this guy. I mean, he's not worthy of death. But then the Sanhedrin and Jesus' own people yell in protest and they say, wait a minute, he claims to be a king. Now, he never claimed to be that kind of king. He claims to be a king. And if you don't do something, we're going to tell Caesar that you're allowing somebody to claim kingship. That's treason. And you didn't do anything about it. So Pilate gets scared. He goes back in, talks to Jesus a little longer. And then he finds out that Jesus is a Galilean. And that's not his district. That's Herod's district. So he sends Jesus over to Herod. Herod can't wait to meet Jesus. Jesus, he says, do some great signs and wonders for us. He thinks Jesus is a circus sideshow. And of course, Jesus just stands there, does not open his mouth, refuses to do any, any, any things like that. So Herod's frustrated. Now, it's important to know here that Herod, what was called in those days, had his men of war. These were men who were professionals at brutality and torture. There is great chance 
that Jesus is beaten all the way from the garden to the Sanhedrin tribe, beaten from the Sanhedrin tribe all the way to Pilate, from Pilate to Herod. Herod's men of war most probably worked Jesus over and sent him back to Pilate. So he's being beaten relentlessly, no food, no water, and again, his skin is incredibly sensitive to touch. Pilate receives him back. Pilate's frustrated. He knows there's nothing in Jesus that warrants death, so he comes out and he says to the people so, and they cry, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate gets concerned that he might be seen as an insurrectionist and that he might lose his job with the empire. So he comes out in a, in a, in a metaphor, in a, in a kind of a symbolic act. He washes his hands and says, my hands are clean of this man's blood. And the people yell out, fine, fine. Let his blood be on our heads and on the heads of our children. Now, at that point, the Bible says in Matthew 27, that he delivered them to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus in the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around them, and they stripped them and put a scarlet robe on him. The whole garrison, that's 600 men. 600 men gather around Jesus in the praetorian guard. Now, when they receive Jesus, in their minds, Jesus is no different than any other common criminal. They don't know who Jesus is. They're Romans. So they think, here's somebody's committed treason, and they're going to punish Jesus like they would any other criminal. And here's what they do. There's going to be a stump jutting out of the ground in the middle of the Praetorian Guard, and they're going to take Jesus' hands, and they're going to tie it first like this. And then the Roman lictor, he's going to come out, and he's schooled in this kind of torture because the Romans were good at keeping you alive as long as possible so that you could suffer as much pain as possible. Don't worry. I'll keep this as PG as possible, okay? But the first thing they're going to do is take a whip, and they're going to lay it on his back just to cause the stripes. But that's just the beginning. And 39 lashes, that's an old wives' tale. The reality is the Roman lictor did it until he was tired of doing it. And after he did that, he's going to take a whip like this. And these are metal balls at the end. And they're very heavy. And he's going to take this whip and he's going to lay it on the back of Jesus relentlessly. His goal is to bruise the entire back and the back of the legs. And then at some point, he's going to release Jesus' right arm and he's going to tie it to another stone or another post jutting. And so that he can do what he did on the back, he can do the same thing on the front. It's not just on the back. It's the back, the back of the legs, the buttocks, the chest, the stomach, the abdomen, and the thighs. And his job is to bruise the back so that there are all kinds of contusions, hemorrhaging inside. And then he takes another whip that looks something like this, only there'd be more than one of these with spikes. And he'll continue to dig into the flesh. That's why some people called scourging halfway death, because a lot of people died before they ever made it to the cross. Seneca, a first century uh, philosopher of sorts, said that it was better to commit suicide than to go through a scourging. If you knew you were going to be scourged and crucified, it's better to kill yourself, because you're going to be kept alive and endure as much suffering as possible. And then finally, the Roman lictor would come with the last whip, and this whip would be something like this, only it would have leather sockets at the end. And in seven strands, it would have those leather sockets, and those leather sockets would contain chips of sharp, sharp bone. And here's what this is designed to do. As the Roman lictor laid the whip on the back of Jesus, it was designed to stick, and the bones would go in, and then to extract flesh as it's pulled away. That's why... Uh, Eusebius, an uh, uh, early church historian, the word for scourging is the word fragalao, which is the word open bowel. Because when you're scourged, you're scourged to such a degree that you can actually start to see internal organs. But the Romans were professionals at this, to make you suffer the most while keeping you alive the longest. The Bible tells us that Jesus suffered every bit of this after hematrogosis, after the betrayal of his friends, of intimacy, independence, and then 
The Bible says that the soldiers, by the way, just quickly, when you go through a scourging, you start to enter into what is called hypovolemic shock. Uh, hyper is low volume or vol, uh, volume and emic blood. You start to lose blood. And when you start to lose blood, and this is important to know before we get to what is called the patabulum, the 200 pound beam that Jesus will carry up the hill. It's important to know because when that happens, uh, your blood, uh, your heart starts pumping really fast to try to pump blood that is not there. And at that point, your blood sh- uh, pressure will decrease and you'll feel faint as if you're going to pass out at any moment. And then your kidneys will stop producing urine to try to maintain what volume is left. And then at some point you become incredibly thirsty. But the point is you're very weak and you're borderlining incoherence and coherence and you're, you're near death. The Roman soldiers take a purple robe and they put it on Jesus. It's going to be very heavy. And the only way I know how to describe it is very scratchy. And the whole point is to put this on the back of Jesus where it's basically raw now from the scourging. And then the Bible says they're going to take a crown of thorns. These are two inch barbed quills that grow in and around the city of Jerusalem. And they're going to smash this down on his head and let those thorns go deep into the skull, penetrating the flesh. And then they're going to put a reed in his right hand. And here's what they're doing. They're saying to Jesus, you say you're a king. Okay, let's dress you up like one. They give him the crown of Caesar, the purple robe of Caesar, and then this represents the scepter that Caesar carried around during festive occasions. And they would give him a reed, and then the Bible says in Luke and Matthew that they took this reed and they smashed the crown of thorns over Jesus' head so that the thorns would be driven deeper into his flesh. And so after they had done that, Jesus is so weak, so exhausted, and remember we're talking about the king of kings here, the son of the living God, that they take him out and he's unable to carry the patabulum. The patabulum is the crossbeam of the cross. The vertical part of the cross is on Mount Golgotha. The, the crossbeam he's expected to carry on his back is 200 pounds. There's no way he's going to be able to do that after going through this. So there's a man, we're told, Simon Serene, who is visiting there because of the Passover. And Simon of Serene carries Jesus' cross for him. But make no mistake, as he's carrying Jesus' cross, the Roman lictor is still bringing that whip onto the back of Jesus all the way up to Golgotha. When they get to Golgotha, the top, they lay the crossbeam down, they put Jesus on there, and they start to drive the nails. This is the closest I could get for you. It's going to be somewhere between five and seven inches long. You say, how do you know that? We know that because of an archaeological dig in 1968 where we discovered the nails in the crucifixion and how deep the wounds were and actually where they crucified people during the time of Titus in AD 70. And so they're going to take these nails, and they're going to nail not here, the nail goes here. It crushes the median nerve. It has to go here because if you nail Jesus here, when he's put on the cross, the body won't stay in place. It'll rip through the flesh and he'll fall off the cross. They nailed it here so the nail can rest up against the, uh, the tarsal bone. When they drive the nail through here, it will crush the median nerve. Uh, the median nerve is a lot like your funny bone. That's really not that funny, is it? And if you take a pair of pliers and you squeeze that and crush it, that's the kind of pain that Jesus is going to experience when they crucify him here. And it's going to take about five to seven pounds to get the nail driven through the flesh into the wood of the cross. And then they're going to nail not here on the top of the foot, but right above the ankle. And it's going to be painful. Now, Jesus ultimately is going to die from asphyxiation. He's going to suffocate. Because when they put you on the cross... They dislocate both your shoulders. And so you're in pain there. You're stretched out. You're stretched and the diaphragm on the crucifixion is put in an inhale position. So you've got air, but there's no way to exhale. And you have to exhale to get the next breath of air. The only way you can do that is by pushing yourself forcefully up on the cross and relieving the tension so that you can exhale and then inhale with another breath. The problem with that is Jesus' back 
is totally splintered. And he continues to rub it on the splinters of the wood of the cross and the deep gashes in the wounds and the blood. And there will come a time when Jesus is so weak that he can no longer push himself up to get the next breath. That's why Jesus knew when death was near and said, into thy hands, Father, I commend my spirit. He knew that he could no longer push himself up and that death was near. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. And what the Bible wants you to understand through the cross and through intimacy is this, that every time we stray away from God, there are serious consequences. Not only have we broken the law of God, but more importantly, it wants you to see that you've broken his heart. He's not going anywhere. He's right there, but you've broken his heart. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. You make me Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.